you guys today? Happy Father's Day. It's so great to be in church with you. I'm so glad that you could be here, and I'm so glad that those of you who are joining us online are able to do so. I'm so glad that we have the technology to be able to do this. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam, and I'm so excited to be introducing a new series to us today. We're starting a new series that we're going to be in uh, right through till the end of July, so the next six, seven weeks or so, uh, and it is called I Am. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Lord, thanks for today. Thank you for fathers. Thank you for the great influence that they are on our lives. Thank you for the important role that dads play in the raising of children and in the lives of their adult children. Lord, thank you for the men in our church who play roles like fathers. Thank you for the gift that they are. Thank you for the men who are longing to be fathers. Lord, we pray that they would be filled. And Lord, we pray for those who have had difficult experiences of fathers pray that you would be the father to them and to show all of us the way forward. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we open your word, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would meet you in a new way. In your name we pray. Amen. So our new series, as I mentioned, is called I Am, and this comes from the name of God. And, I mean, let's be clear. God has many names. We know him as Father. We know him as the Almighty, we refer to him as the Ancient of Days, but this, I am, this is how God self-identifies when he is asked. We find this in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where this is the encounter at the burning bush. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am, the name of God. We see this sometimes come up in different ways in our Bible. Sometimes uh, we would hear the name Hashem. This is how the Jews refer to the name of God. And Hashem means the name. Because they consider the name of God to be too holy even to say. Uh, a transliteration of, the, of this name, I am who I am, from the Hebrew letters is often seen uh, in the letters Y-H-W-H, pronounced Yahweh. Some of you are familiar with the name of God in another form, and that is Jehovah. Jehovah is, in fact, a translation error. It is a mistake, but it's okay. Jehovah is, is a mix-up between the name Yahweh and the name Adonai, which means Lord, because the Jews viewed Yahweh as too holy to say, they would write the letters for Adonai into the letters for Yahweh, and then some well-meaning translator saw those together and went, oh, it says Jehovah. But we usually see this in our Bible. When you see the capital, all caps, it says Lord, it's all capitals, and they're kind of smaller capital letters, that's usually... Yahweh. That's I am who I am. And that comes up a fair bit in our Bibles. And there are two things that I find really important to remember about the name of God. The first is that his name means that God is without peer. And let's be a little bit real about this name. It feels like a non-answer. I am who I am, that's not a name. If anything, It's a repudiation of the need for names. 
Names are for things that need to be distinguished. If your family only has one car, then you don't say, I'm taking the red car to the grocery store. You just say, I'm taking the car. If you have two cars, now you probably want to be specific. Moses lived in a world with many gods. He grew up in Egypt. The Egyptians had over 2,000 gods, though some sources suggest that most were extremely minor and that there were more like a dozen major gods. But still, I think the point stands. If you're in a culture with dozens or hundreds of gods, you can't just say, God spoke to me. The response would be, which God spoke to you? But Moses does say that because there are no other gods beside our God. You can just see God speaking to Moses and saying, you know, Moses says, what is your name? What should I tell them? And God goes, oh, sweetie. No, sweetie. Names are for things that have equals. I have no equals. There is no one beside me. I am who I am. The name of God is a repudiation of all the gods of all the cultures in the world to say that our God stands alone. The second thing that the name of God teaches us is about the flexibility of God. My Bible has a note where right behind the, the words, I am who I am, and that note says that it could also be translated, I will be what I will be. Where our first point was about the solitude of God, but like in a good way, you know what I mean? This second point is about the sufficiency of God. You don't need one God for fertility and another God for your crops and another for your rain and another for your cattle. Our God is all of those things. He will be what we will need him to be. There is no realm of human activity where he is not God. This is part of what we mean when we say that God is all-powerful. Power is the ability to affect a situation, and there is no situation in which God is not powerful. This flexibility is reflected in some of the Old Testament names of God, where God's people saw God act in different ways. In Exodus 15, he's referred to as Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer. In Genesis 22, he is called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. In Ezekiel 48, he is Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who is present, the God who is here. And in Isaiah chapter 1, he is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, or the Lord of hosts, as we often see it translated. But it's not hosts like people who have people over, it's hosts like mobs, like armies, like hordes. God will be whatever we need him to be. Not in the sense that he changes to accommodate us, but that he is already sufficient for everything that we need. Jesus took on this name. Jesus took this aspect of God, this this name of God, and he took it for himself and he said, I am. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is in a discussion with many of the Pharisees and religious leaders, and he says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. And this is quite clearly understood by the audience as Jesus claiming the divine name because their response is they pick up stones and they try to kill him. But this is important to know. 
right? You will, so, it is often said, Jesus never claimed to be God. And it is true, you will never find in the Bible, Jesus saying, I am God. Those words don't appear. But that Jesus would claim to be, I am, is the same thing. Jesus expands on this name with seven I am statements of his own in the Gospel of John. And that's the series that we're going to be doing together until the end of July. Today is the first sermon in that series, and we are talking about I am the true vine. The context for these words is that it comes in the middle of a huge speech that Jesus gives between the Last Supper and being arrested by the religious leaders. John chapter 13 is the account of the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he talks with them, right? They have, well, it doesn't describe communion the way that we're used to seeing it, but it's clearly what he's instituting there. But the speech then runs, it starts in John 14, and it runs all the way through the end of chapter 17. John 18 begins with a section titled, Jesus is Arrested. In my Bible, that's like three and a half pages, and it's all red letters. Okay, it's not all red letters. There's like three sentences that aren't. But it's almost all red letters. And in fact, on the page where chapter 15 is, which is where our text comes from today, other than the section headings, literally the only letters that are not in red are the words, Jesus replied. They're the first two words on the page, and the whole rest of the page is red. It's a big Big speech. Jesus has a lot to say in these chapters. This is his final address to the disciples before the crucifixion. And I think we should take it seriously. Let's read it together. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me... Can we get turn me down a bit? I'm really loud. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. It feels like I could just put the mic down. Like we could just, we could just stew on that. But I feel like you'd feel a little cheated. So let's talk about it a bit more. I love verse 5 out of that passage. Verse 5 is such a great summary. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Danielle has gotten really into gardening this year. We built some garden boxes in our backyard to expand on the little plot that we had against our house, and we've got all kinds of yummy things growing back there. Our kids want to go out every day and see if there are any strawberries or raspberries or blueberries. Me? I'm waiting for the watermelon. Oh, baby. A couple months ago, though, it was still pretty cold, and I started seeing these funny little cups appearing in our house. They were about the size of tea lights, and they just looked like dirt. And then they started sprouting. Danielle had started seedlings. We had some bean plants that she was especially excited about. But you know what we learned this year? You have to be really careful about how much outside time you give those little plants in the beginning. I mean, come on, they're plants. They grow outside. How careful can you need to be? Well, can you guess where those bean plants are now? They're in the fire pit. Because they did not make it. Holding those dead plants, I was reminded of what we are like when we are cut off from God. Not vibrant, not alive, not producing. Without him, we are just sticks. We can't do anything without him. He is our source. So what does that mean for you? What is it that you need to do? You might not be producing raspberries. But what is it that you need to do? You wouldn't dream of going for a run without the proper shoes. Sorry to the marathoners who got canceled this morning from the heat. You wouldn't go on a trip without packing first. So why do we feel like we can go about life, especially like we can try and do things for God without connecting to him? God is our source. He is where we get life and everything that we need to produce fruit. Do you need to raise kids? Do you need to pass a test? Do you need to finish a presentation for work? Do you have to build a curriculum or fly a plane or fix an engine? He is the vine. You are the branches. Apart from him, you can do nothing. And that feels like hyperbole, right? It feels like an exaggeration. I mean, just look out there. Aren't there a whole bunch of people out there who are apart from him and who are apparently doing something? It's a good question. And I'm so glad you're thinking about it. Well, there are two things that we can say about that. The first is that Jesus is talking about the ability to do something that matters for eternity. It's not that you can't pick an apple or write a book report without Jesus, but saving people for eternity making that difference in someone's life, we need God for that. And the second thing, to go back to my poor, sad bean plants from earlier, is that we don't always realize right away when we're cut off. 
Like if you pull a fish out of the water, that fish knows right away that something is wrong. It's been cut off from its source, and soon it will be good only for roasting over the fire with some nice butter and lemon and spices and... Sorry, where was I going with that? Plants, however, are not like that. And that's the analogy that Jesus is making here. We didn't put those bean plants outside and they immediately turned yellow and keeled over. No. It took several days. They slowly started to wither. Their colors started to change. Their posture started to slip. After a few days, we could tell what was going on. But even then, it wasn't finished going on. And for so many Christians, that's what it's like. We know how to hold our color. We know how to keep our stem and leaves upright. Even though we've been taking a break from connecting to our source. But the people around us, especially the people closest to you, they'll be able to tell if that something is wrong. You may not change color, but maybe you're more snappy. Maybe you don't wilt but maybe you're less kind. If you're not in touch with the source of your life, the difference is noticeable. So what else can we say about this passage? What is the fruit that we are to bear? Jesus talks a lot about how we must bear fruit in him. Jesus talks about how we need to remain in him because he is the vine, and we just talked about what happens if you disconnect. But he also spends a lot of time talking about bearing fruit. This isn't just a warning. This is also an encouragement. What's he talking about? Well, let's go back to our text because it feels like that was a while ago. Starting in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. This is my command, love each other. There's an amazing and sort of fascinating web of dependency going on here. Love is the command, but it's also what we remain in if we keep the command. And the command is love to do and remain in, and and it sort of all works together, which can be confusing. And there's a lot of talk of love in our world today, of what it means to love someone. Does it mean to accept someone just the way that they are? Does it mean to hold someone to a standard that they are currently not achieving? I think there's truth to both of those ideas. But here, Jesus is talking about a love that gives. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is a love that gives up comfort, gives up its desires in order to serve the other. This is the fruit that Jesus calls us to bear. This is the love that Jesus demonstrated when he stretched his arms wide and was nailed to a cross for my sin 
and yours. This is the love that we are called to share with the world, to love till it hurts, to love beyond what can be reasonably expected, to look at how much you're serving and wonder how you have the time, to look at how much you give and wonder how you make it work, to inconvenience yourself because someone is hurting and you need to be there for them. That is what we're called to do. There's one final aspect of this passage that I want to bring to your attention. At the start of John 15, Jesus doesn't just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine. What could this mean? Did you know that Israel is often referred to as a vine or even as a whole vineyard in Scripture? Ezekiel 17 and 19 both refer to Israel this way. Let's look at a passage from Isaiah chapter 5. And remember that Isaiah was written as a warning and a desperate cry for Israel to turn back to God before the exile to Babylon. So Isaiah chapter 5, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he once delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, Isaiah is not a book that we tend to preach out of a lot. We like to focus on the Gospels and on the letters, basically keep it in the New Testament for the most part. And, I mean, that's really what's relevant for us, right? It's not a bad philosophy. But I think most of our focus, I think most of our focus should be in the New Testament. That's probably good. But all that being said, I bet that passage from Isaiah rang some bells for some of you. It sounds a whole lot like the parable of the tenants, In Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 33. Let's read that. Listen to another parable. This is a parable of Jesus, right? This is Jesus talking. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, they killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. 
Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Do you see the parallels? They kind of jump off the page. So when Jesus says that he is the true vine, he's not only talking about being our source and how we can't do anything apart from him. Jesus is also appealing to an established scriptural tradition and image, which he does in this passage in Matthew, where Israel is described as a vine or as a vineyard, except that Jesus says he is the true vine. I can scarcely begin to describe how significant this is. Think about everything that the nation of Israel signifies in Scripture. Think about it. Israel is referred to many times in Scripture as God's son. That the nation is in some metaphorical sense God's son. But Jesus is God's true son. Israel is the chosen people of God. But Jesus is the chosen one. That's what Messiah means, the chosen one. Israel was the source of all of God's self-revelation to the world. He didn't come to Egypt or Babylon or Rome. He came to Israel and he spoke through them. But Jesus is the true revelation of God, as we see in Hebrews 1. Israel was how people could come to God. That's where the temple was and where salvation could be found. But Jesus is the true salvation, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. This statement coming right before the passion events is Jesus letting his followers know, and us as well, just how complete his work is about to be. That Jesus is everything that we need the fullness of God's revelation, and the finished path of God's rescue of a sinful humanity. Jesus is the true vine. We are the branches. Our life is in him. Our hope is in him. Our connection to God and the promise of eternal life is all through him. So don't neglect that connection. Our daily attachment to God through reading the scriptures and prayer, singing his praises, or however else you choose to engage in worship, that is the lifeline that we need for every aspect of life. Let us remember that as we go into our week and all through our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these words that you've given us in the Gospel of John, that you are the true vine and we are the branches. We remember, God, that remind us, Lord, that without you, we can do nothing. How desperately we need you, Lord. Keep that front and center in our minds as we go into our weeks. As Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday come around, Lord, we need the vine. We must stay in the vine if we are to bear fruit. Help us to be your people. In your name we pray. Amen.